So in the early days, it was um, buy a house. And, you know, then you go through that change of, of having kids and then it goes through, you know, being able to spend time with the kids. So money changed from have, being that necessity in, in just doing what we do all day, every day. And then as time went on, money changed. So, you know, that's when money becomes, well, how can I make money from money? And wherever am I going to be able to best use my money? Money became more important because I could see what would happen if I invested a dollar, I could get two or three back. So it was always a, a learning curve of, of what money meant, how it changed and, and how, how it could benefit you. Um, so now money is, um, well, to best use my money is to work out how I can make more money off that money to to ultimately not have to uh, be involved in the thing that generates it. Welcome to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, the leading weekly show to help you unlock your full self, health and wealth potential. I'm your host, Bushy Martin, and each week I go deep with the best investors, experts, leaders and founders to find out what it takes to break free from the grind, discover freedom and live by design. Subscribe now and join me and get invested in the life you really want. Let's get started. Hi, Freedom Fighters. What does the concept of access versus ownership mean to you? And what about opportunity cost? And what's any of this got to do with investing? Well, you're going to be surprised. Many of us have been brought up to believe that cash is king, that you should pay cash for everything because you should never, ever owe anybody anything. But does this approach really stand the test of time? For many, this is clearly not the case when it comes to owning your own home. If you waited until you'd saved up enough to, of your hard-earned cash to buy your home, you'd be dead and buried at worst or old and grey at best. So clearly when it comes to our homes, early access is more important than ownership because until we pay off our home loans, which normally takes anywhere between 25 to 30 odd years, our homes are actually owned by the bank. But by taking out a home loan, we only need to put down a anywhere between a 5 to 20% deposit to control the asset. And for this, we get early access to our home as a precursor to, to deferred ownership at the cost of the interest we pay on the loan. And this leaves us the remainder of our savings and our earning capacity to be invested in other things, like an investment in property, which is where the concept of opportunity cost comes into play. In simple terms, opportunity cost is the value of the next best alternative when you make a decision. It's what you give up when you take when you make one decision over another. So let's apply this to your car. You could use your savings to pay cash for a car, or you could finance it with a small deposit and tax-deductible monthly repayments if you use it for business, and then invest the remainder of your savings funds into wealth-creating growth assets like shares or property. Or you could keep them in a reserve as a rainy day reserve fund. The opportunity cost of paying cash for the car is that you lose the opportunity to invest the rest. And this is where the benefits of access over ownership and opportunity cost actually come together. You have the option to pay less for your, of your hard-earned cash now to get access and control over an asset while your remaining monies are invested elsewhere. By putting on a pair of investment glasses, you can start to make your financial decisions differently by asking yourself, how can I control and enjoy access to this asset now at minimal cost while freeing up my funds to invest in other high growth opportunities? 
Now, clearly, you have to do a proper cost-benefit analysis to look at the true cost comparisons of your options once all costs, including inflation, et cetera, are all factored in. It's a reason that my partner in all things, Sonia and I, rent-vested for many years when we started in property because we could live where we wanted to at a fraction of the cost of buying a property in the area while our savings and finance capacity were put to better work by investing in rental properties, where the tenant and the tax office did all of the heavy lifting and carrying the cost of holding the properties. It was about making our money work harder and smarter. Now, I'm not suggesting that you just go out and buy everything you want now and stick it all on bad debt credit, because this is going to restrict your good debt property borrowing capacity, as every dollar you've borrowed via a credit card or a personal loan will reduce how much you can borrow on a property by anywhere between 4 to $7, depending on the lender. And certainly don't take out a big car or equipment loan in the year that you're looking to buy to borrow monies for your next property, as this is likely to really clip your wings. But for assets like work cars, vehicles and office equipment that can attract tax and cost advantage incentives, financing them cleverly and carefully can free up resources and funds to invest in other business and or wealth building opportunities. And like everything done well, the devil's always in the detail here, which is where today's special guest comes to your rescue. Because when it comes to asset finance, you need an experienced expert specialist, not a generalist. And because generalists do a little bit of everything and end up knowing actually enough to be dangerous all at your expense. Now, one of the benefits of actively working in the property, finance and investment arenas for many years is that I get to rub shoulders with some really great quality people. And I can count on an amputated hand the number of asset finance brokers who are not only great at what they do, but share my values and are great people to boot. And today's guest is definitely one of them. Michael Johnston is by far the best asset finance broker I've ever had the pleasure of dealing with. I first met Michael just under 20 years ago, would you believe, which when he actually helped Sonia and I with our work vehicles when we owned our property management business. And we were so impressed with how he looked after us that we've been referring others to him for their finance uh, vehicle needs ever since. Because Michael's not just a one-hit wonder, fly-in, fly-out, uh, one one crack of an instant success asset finance broker, his genuine care and long-term relationship approach extends to the level that when I bought my last Black Beast Bushmobile in Adelaide a few years ago, he went above and beyond to put me in touch with a car dealer in Melbourne, where I was actually able to buy the car for $10,000 less than I was able to get it in good old South Oz. So in an environment that's getting increasingly more complex and overwhelming, Michael's the Director of National Direct Finance who combine their decades of experience across multiple lenders and loan solutions to help you to source, structure, negotiate, and deliver the best available result to suit your specific needs. So I'm really excited to unpack his personal journey this week before we deep dive into the nitty gritties of asset finance in next week's episode. So welcome, and let's get invested, Michael. Right, thank you very much. That's a fantastic intro. I think it's uh, probably better than the uh, intro I got at my wedding. <laughs> so, thank you very much. 
Well, mate, it uh, all comes straight from the heart, mate, and and I I don't make statements like that uh, easily or, or or otherwise, mate. And so it's uh, all the the absolute truth in in no certain terms. But mate, I'm really uh, privileged to have you on the show today because uh, you and I have been rubbing shoulders uh, uh, a fair bit over the years, and to to actually spread the word of your message to others that have similar needs, very keen to do that. But uh, I guess to kick things off, Michael, um. In terms of a personal introduction, uh, let's let's start by getting you to tell us what you do differently, and more importantly, why you do what you do, mate. Yeah, thanks, Bushy. Thanks for the opportunity as well. It's uh, a you know, pleasure to be able to do this. And as you say, we've worked together uh, for a long time, and and I too, like you, I, I work. I've been in the industry for twenty odd years. I work with a lot of people. Um, but there's only a few that I've actually truly um, invest time and effort into uh, because of those, um, you know, similar uh, beliefs that we have and, and the way that we want to look after our, our customers and our people within our businesses um, and have the opportunity to be able to you know, spread what we believe uh, back to back to our people. So, mate, thank you. So I guess where my journey is in, as far as my business, so we're a, a um multifaceted asset finance business, so by that, or finance brokerage. So by that, I mean we look at uh, not just cars and equipment, uh, machinery. But once upon a time, it used to be simply if it had a serial number on it, we could finance it. And I have to point out, we don't do home loans. Uh, so it's not in our wheelhouse. It's not what we're good at, and all finance isn't equal. So from that perspective, we stuck to what we know. Um, uh, so our, my background comes from cars. I left school as a motor mechanic. Um, saw all these guys in suits and dealerships and thought that would be nicer than wearing my overalls and getting dirty every day. Um, eventually um, got into sales through just doing things that, that I now realise were where my business was heading or what I wanted a future business to look like. So I did things like car shows for, for uh, from the workshop. Um, you know, I'd be in the workshop in the morning, go to the car, Melbourne car show, for instance, was on for... For a week in in uh, in the city, and and we'd spend that time hassling the sales sales manager to to, to try and get a chance to, to have a go and talk to people, and and from there it just came about relationships and experience, and and I really got value out of people um, engaging and and accepting the information that I was giving them. Um, so went through a career, and don't hold it against me, but I went through a career in car sales. Um, and then into running dealerships and and then eventually into uh, my first experience into an online finance brokerage. Um, and having had some experience through financing the dealerships, um, this was kind of a new thing. It, it actually opened up uh, my eyes to the fact that I didn't have one product to sell anymore. So you know, people walk into a dealership, their, their intent is, uh, the dealership's intent is to sell you the product that they have on the floor and not let you leave until you do. So for all intents and purposes, their, their product is the best product and uh, no one else out there matters. Um, so they'll tell you why you should buy their car, why theirs is so much better than theirs, uh, better than the others. Um, and then um, if you're successful in buying that car, then they'll try and sell you aftermarket, they'll sell you finance, they'll, and it's all about selling a car, their, their car that they have in stock. 
so getting into a brokerage after that really opened my eyes to the fact that hey, I can actually talk to people about a lot of things. And it wasn't one lender, one one bank, one product. Uh, it meant no, I had opportunity to actually help people. So whilst, yes, my role is to sell a product and I don't make money unless I sell a product, it was at that point where I had the ability to choose the products and choose for the benefit of the client. Um, and probably in the early days, it was a case of, well, we're learning, it's, these are the products we've got uh, through the lenders, and so we would sell. And then as time went on and I was more experienced, got to really understand what a broker's role was. And, and as a broker, our job is to broker. We're, we're not there to sell a product. We're there to find the best product that suits the client's needs, get the, the best result for the client, and that may not actually mean it's the best result for me. So in, in by that, I mean, it might not be the lender that gives me the most commissions. It might not be the lender that, that uh, gives me the best kickback somewhere down the track, uh, but more about making sure that client got what they were expecting to get uh, before they, they um, came to us. Uh, and sometimes it's not a case that the customers know exactly what they're after either. So yeah, as an education piece, we need to take on that um, knowledge and confidence for the client to make sure that we understand what they're looking for and give them the confidence that we're helping them make that decision. Um, yeah. So what they came in for might have actually been and not quite the right product. Um, and yeah, and that, that's a real skill is because is, uh, people... Uh, when it comes to anything like this, uh, you know, as I said in the intro, often know enough to be dangerous, uh, yeah. and they think they know what they need. But uh, it, once you open their eyes to the the options and the pros and cons of what's on offer, uh, then suddenly uh, there's a bit of a penny drop moment there that they go, okay, well now I really understand what I need. So that's a a really important part of it. I'd, what I'd like to do uh, briefly, Michael, is, is circle back to. You know, when you made the change from uh, selling cars to moving into the finance area, what 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 attracted you to do that? What was what was the thing that sort of got you to think, oh, gee, I think I'd uh, have more fun uh, and more satisfaction out of doing that? Can you remember? Yeah, look, I sort of agree. I, I touched on finance in the dealership, and I found that that was the part of the process. We actually got to know the client better, not. Um, so much that they'd, they were there to buy finance. They were there to buy a car. Yeah. Finance was a separate thing. And we got to get closer to the clients in the finance department more so than the sales department. So it kind of taught me a different level of, of relationship um, and really trying to identify what people's needs were. Because uh, we all know when someone comes into a dealership, they need a car. You know, and, and you've got that ability to sell what's there in front of you and and. It, Nine times out of ten, people are coming in there because they've already seen it and liked it, done their research. Yeah. Um, so from a finance perspective, again, they didn't really know what they needed. We were an add-on to the sale. And, and to a, a smaller degree, we had to fight for that opportunity uh, because they might have had relationships elsewhere. Uh, but as I say, the dealership side of things was, again, just sell the products that you've got. You're, you're rewarded on what you sell. There's certain KPIs between all the departments. And so... Um, I guess once I left that environment, and I didn't really know when I got into the finance brokerage world that that's where I was going to stay. And ultimately, when I, I left, um, I went to a, a brokerage for, owned by a, a gentleman that I'd worked for uh, before or worked with before in a, a previous dealership. 
And um, he said, just come and sit in here while you're looking for something to do and, and you know, just take your time and, you know, if we can um, help you find what you're looking for, fantastic, but come in here and do this. And, and that's what I say, that was the eye-opener because all of a sudden I had products. I had, um, I had the ability to be more open and honest with clients because it wasn't just, hey, my product's the best product. Um, here's a bunch of lenders, here's a bunch of options, and here are the differences between those. It might not just be rate. It might not be, you know, the name of the brand of the product. Um, it, you know, once you drill in and talk to the customer and understand, you know, what they wanted, how they were going to use the product, what uh, their long-term goals were going to be, you might have been able to then suggest products are best suited that scenario. Um, so you went away from being transactional uh, to to actually understanding it and have a more holistic idea of the um, what you might be able to do with the client. And my, I guess the way I'm, I'm built is that I'm looking for a long-term relationship. So it wasn't about, hey, I can just sell this product now and never see the client again. It was, okay, if I can sell this product now and I do a good job, the customer appreciates it and we, we achieve what they were hoping to achieve, I might get that opportunity again uh, or I might get a referral or um, you know, family or, you know, it's more of a holistic idea. Um, and that's something I really uh, appreciate it. Um, and, and so at that point, that's when I thought, okay, finance brokerage is, is where I want to end up. Yeah. Um, I, I know you've had a few ducks and weaves uh, sort of taste testing other exercises and, and ended up back in the broking space. So yeah. uh, take us on that journey, mate. T- tell us about uh, what you deci- why you decided to do something else for a period and then, then what's brought you back into, into the space that you're so good at. Yeah, look, I guess it's like most people. You do something for so long and you become bored by it. You think you've reached as far as you want to go or you just burn out. You, you've just gotten to the point where you think, where is my future in this? There's less opportunities coming about, uh, less opportunity to earn an income or, or a better income. Um, so then you have to start looking either sideways or staying within the industry and, and doing the same thing, but somewhere else and then hopefully at a, a different level um, to give you more opportunity uh, again in the future. Um, so I um, kind of did that. I uh, GFC hit. Things were, were pretty tough in in all sectors. Uh, I had some friends that were in franchising and um, we sort of talked a lot, looked at what they were doing, how their businesses were affected by GFC, um, what they did in their businesses. And, and a lot of it was around relationships. So building relationships with franchisors, building relationships with franchisees, teaching their people how to have relationships with with their customers, and and uh, it sounded really more down my my pathway. As I said, I was getting a, a bit tired of where I was and and not doing what I wanted to do. So um, I got into it. I know I always say to people, I got into franchising, and so people are engaged and think, oh, that's great. Uh, I've worn a suit all my life up until I was about 30, 32, um, suit and tie, shiny shoes, uh, cufflinks, and then I said to people, I've, I've bought a dog wash franchise. <laughs> um, so everyone looked at me madly and uh, a bit puzzled and couldn't quite work out what I was doing. And then we explained. We actually purchased the, the Australian New Zealand rights um, to this franchise model and, and 
our role was to to basically bring franchisees in uh, and build a brand, uh, which was already a well-known, strong brand in, in the country. Yep. Um, but it was a, a division of that brand that needed some, some growth. Um, so from that perspective, it was a bit of a challenge. So I, I, with two partners, three of us in total, we thought the three of us could run those or that business while each ran their own uh, other franchise business. And I stayed in finance, um, but we found that it was probably out of our comfort zone. It wasn't, whilst the franchise model was the same, that these two guys had, had grown up in and, in fact, had developed themselves to a large degree, um, the product itself was somewhat different. So different people, different uh, style of selling, um, and probably more emotive than, than what these other uh, businesses that they owned were. Um, so that took us a while, it probably took us six months to get our, our our heads around how that had to work, which meant one of us had to leave the jobs that we were doing. Uh, and then given that the other two partners owned their own businesses, uh, it wasn't going to be them. And, and so this was my first full foray into running my own business. Yeah. Um, and we did that, or I did that for the fact that I just wanted to, again, just take that next step. Yeah. wanted to apply all those things that I'd learned through corporate world and try and make that um, you know, make something of it and you know, with, with putting my own stamp on it yeah. um, so I got got into into that world and and loved it um, so it took me a long time took me a, whole, a long time to understand the industry and and the, the emotions within that industry um, and uh, but ultimately what it came back to was um, our style of selling my style of selling was the same no matter what I did yeah. and, and also the way I treated people and, and be staff or franchisees or other franchisors, um, the, the philosophy around how I sold um, didn't change. Yeah. So I had to learn the product and, and understand the product a lot more, but I didn't really have to change what I already knew. Um, yeah. and, and that was the exciting part was once that penny dropped, um, we were able to teach you know, dog groomers how to run their own business and, and how to be profitable. And, and probably the only other thing that came out about that was people's expectations. You know, what was success? Um, you know, if, if someone was investing their time and money into their business, what, what I thought was successful uh, didn't necessarily mean what they, what wasn't their same vision of success. Yeah. Um, so we had to, or I had to learn how to to change with that. So we'd have some people that could earn fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, and think that was fine. In my mind, we had models that could would, would allow them to double that income. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't understand why I was getting resistance when I was asking them to try different things to be able to earn more money. Uh, but once we understood where they wanted to be in life um, and what was success to them, then. You know, we, we had better relationships and and more successful people out there. Yeah, it makes sense. So, what what circled you back then into the uh, the asset finance arena? Yeah, so with the franchise, we actually sold it probably five years sooner than we we wanted to. Um, I bought one of my partners out. We were looking at um, expanding the business, looking for either investors or or um, other opportunities to, to cross network the business. 
Uh, we looked at some of the big pet suppliers in the country and, and started having a conversation with them. Um, but because it was a franchise, that, that limited their, their ability to, to grow the business in the directions they wanted. Yeah. Uh, so one day we spoke to the, the owner of the franchise brand and um, he made us an offer to, to sell the business back to him, um, which, which meant we, you know, we were selling five years earlier. The business wasn't in a position where we, were, where we thought we would have it at a sale, uh, but we were offered a, an offer that was good enough to, to convince us to sell it. Um, and unlike any other sale of a business, it was done within three or four days. So from the day of offer to the day we had the check was, was very, very quick. Wow. So, so that prompted that side of it, and, and it was just a timing thing. Um, it was either invest more money into it and, and stick around for a while or take this opportunity now and then go and look at other areas. And, and I guess what brought me back into the finance was I never quite left it. So whilst we were talking to franchisees and we were looking for funding to get them into to their business, my background sort of kept me involved in that side. Yeah. Um, and there were still customers that I'd always dealt with that wanted support. So they would come to me before going anywhere else. So I would still broker uh, the odd business here and there. Yeah. Um, and then I got involved with somebody who I'd worked with in the franchise, in the finance um, brokerage prior um, that had gone out on his own and, and had a business that was, was going okay but needed some help. And... Um, Whilst I was doing my finance, I was referring business back to them and then the opportunity came up to help them grow their business. And again, that was a short-term idea. Uh, and then eventually, having gotten involved, having rebranded, having um, uh, just changed the, the, that business the way it ran, um, I thought I've invested all this time and effort and money now. Um, I, I might as well go and do this. So I actually started or joined National Direct Finance and um, and we set up a division in, in Melbourne. They were a Queensland base. Uh, and then our role was to uh, help develop brokers, young brokers coming into the industry to run their own brokerage, yeah. um, which again suited, supported my passion in, in helping people grow their businesses. Um, but it did it now in a in a franchise in a sorry in a finance environment, yeah. uh, and gave me the ability to put the two together. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Um, I, I want to circle back now, uh, uh, Michael, yeah, if we can. Uh, yeah, now uh, if you can if you can still hear me there, Michael. Uh, sorry, go again, mate. Sorry, yeah. I just want to circle back to our uh, your childhood, if I can, because often our families have a big impact on how we think, look, and act act in the world. So how has your upbringing affected who you've become, do you think? Yeah, I think I was lucky, different, and it, it affects different people in different ways as well. So I won't suggest that, that yeah, my brother had the same experience doing, doing what we did, but um, it, it somehow suited me. Um, but uh, my father was in the services um, and we travelled a lot. Um, and we would uh, find ourselves... You know, spending some time in Australia and then Southeast Asia, um, getting to travel a lot out of Southeast Asia, uh, coming back to live in Australia. And and Dad, Dad really enjoyed Hong Kong, Southeast Asia area, and 
and had done some work in Singapore and Butterworth in in uh, uh, for a fair bit of time in Hong Kong, and and so he would circle back to that. Um, and I'm probably yeah, you can see now I'm an introvert. I find it hard to talk to people. Uh, I uh, I um, found that I could actually reinvent myself as I went. So I was an introvert. I was a shy kid. I didn't have trouble making friends, but I didn't um, – once I was in a bubble, I, I would stay there. Um, so each time we changed, it gave me that opportunity to reinvent. And, and again, if I look back at it now, it was teaching me selling the whole time. Mm. So it was teaching me or teaching me relationships. So I don't know what's called selling, selling. It's you know, relationship is is selling in, yeah. in my book. We you know, we've all done it. We've all you know probably had girlfriends, you know, got engaged, gotten married. Um, that's selling. because uh, in one way or another we've had to sell. Yeah. Um so I think it gave me that that confidence uh, that that okay, that didn't work. So now what do I have to do to to be who I want to be. Uh, and so there's a lot of, like when we're all young, we're always looking to try and work out who we are in life. And and I think that just accelerated things because it just gave that opportunity to to do it. Um, and it, as I just taught you some resilience. It taught you that, hey, not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to um, uh, want to be a part of what you do. Um, and, and we had two years to deal with it most of the time. So it was, you had a posting for two years and then you were gone. Yeah. And this was before Facebook and Instagram and, yeah. and all those things. And, and I wasn't much of a writer. So once we left a place, the pen pal thing might have worked for a, you know, a year or a month or two. But outside of that, you, you dropped off pretty quickly. Yeah, mate, I'm right there with you. I'm very similar. And I, I think the adaptability that comes out of uh, constantly moving to new locations and travel and having to establish new relationships. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, everything you're talking about, uh, it resonates uh, with me personally. Yeah. Very, very similar in that regard. But I, if, if we look at, look back on that, that time, Michael, what are the sort of core values and belief that, that emerged from that and, and how have they uh, influenced your life ongoing? Yeah, look, I think there's three, and they're probably fairly standard things, but uh, it's how you use them, I think, is the important thing. So honesty and integrity uh, are probably the, the two uh, key ones that I, I tend to think are the most important. Um, and in fact, if, if I pull it back to those two, you know, I, I think that that's your foundation. Yeah. Um, and... And outside of that, sure, we were in a place for a short period of time, and, and I guess you you treat it a bit like Facebook of today. You can get up and you can slam anything out there that makes people think you are what you are, um, when when clearly you're not. Um, and to a degree, when you travelled a lot, you had that same ability, but you were grounded in that same place, so you got found out pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so, so they're the, probably the couple of things that I I, I hold as a high value. Um, and and they're non-negotiables. It's it's you know there's honesty in, in you as a, a human. Uh, there's honesty in how you operate uh, your business. There's you know honesty in the way that you treat you know your family. Um, and and within honesty comes integrity. So you know you you have to look. You have to believe in yourself and in what you do. And 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 I think if. If that's your core and you stick to it and you believe it, 
then it's it's not something you work towards. You know, it's just there, and 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 to me, it's that foundation. One hundred percent, and honesty and integrity are, are terms that are thrown around very loosely. Sadly, it's easy to do. Yeah, yeah, but but the reality of of that and living that. Uh, and and being happy to have hard conversations and say no and be brutally honest in in times when it's important. And I, you know, but we talk about our business. Uh, we we have a brutal honest policy. So yep. uh, you know, we, we we have a a regular keep stop start session with our team where we say, I want you to keep doing this. I want you to uh, stop doing that, and I want you to start doing this. Uh, and and we often say that if you find yourself at home talking to your partner about something uh, or someone at work and you haven't had that conversation, then there's an issue. Uh, yeah. So you're creating an environment where that that form of uh, direct uh, honesty is is both respected and appreciated is is really a foundation stone in our self belief because if we if we yeah. believe in that ourselves, then that that tends to emanate in every interaction we we have with it, everyone else. So now I love you sharing that, mate. Uh, yeah. While we're talking about the family, what's what's a funny story uh, that your family tells about you that you'd love to share with us, mate? Um, oh, they pick on me a lot, but I don't know. There's too many funny stories. I don't. They don't think I'm funny. Full stop. But. Um, there's one that comes up whenever we catch up with a friend of mine that um, everyone in the family is is embraced, and we might have probably added a bit of mayo to it over the years as well. But uh, but coming from a service family, you're often mixed with service kids um, in in different areas. So we were in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Um, there was a community of, of service um, people that lived in you know a, a, say a block vicinity of each other. Um, being in housing commission homes, and we um, we we tend to have the same sort of upbringing. You know, you're here, they're there. These kids might have been there for six months at the end of their their tenure, and and you know you've just arrived, and and so they mixed around, and we we connected this with this one family that um, I'm from Queensland. Um, we'd just come back in from Hong Kong. And uh, primary school, uh, again, we just connected. And, and it was probably because of the service piece, I'm not sure, but we were probably only one of one of a couple of kids in the school that were, were service um, background. Yep. Um, so we stuck thick for a while. And, and Melbourne, for that period of time, and that was in the early 80s, was probably a place we stayed for the longest. And so we started to build up relationships well with these guys and, and still very good mates today. Yeah. Um, but uh, we didn't have a lot of money as, as kids. Service didn't really pay a hell of a lot. Um, you know, the, the uh, I remember mum telling us at one point for some of the Christmas presents, she made them for us. Mum's a great seamstress. Uh, can cook and can make clothes. So we, for a long time, mum used to make our own clothes, stick our labels on them, um, you know, even to the point where at school, uh, out of those three stripes in the in the early 80s were the thing to have. Um, you probably had a pair, yeah. I'm, so, I'm still an Adidas man, mate. Uh, sadly, yeah. it's sort of been imprinted on my well, I think I think the shoes used to be the Adidas Roams and the, uh, the tracksuit pants were... We're, uh, you know, the three stripe. Now, we couldn't afford the brand, so we couldn't afford the Adidas three stripes. But um, mum being as good as she was, we'd go to Kmart, if, if it was Kmart at the time, she'd buy something that looked similar, and then she would sell on the third stripe. So I had Adidas three stripes. 
so, so that being mum's talent, when we got to um, high school, uh, we went to a tech um, in Sunshine, and uh, uh, and that's where you obviously, as you know, you, you go from primary school to high school, and you break up. Um, you know, some go to one way, some go the other. So this mate and I went to the tech, and um, his sister was already at the tech. Um, so you know, we had uh, some knowledge of people there and other kids and brothers and sisters from from the school. But somehow, and I don't really know how it came about, but mum had convinced my mate's mum, or not convinced, they they both agreed that it was the right thing to do that we should have a uniform. So we were two of the only kids in this pretty hardcore school that wore a uniform. And not even this guy's sister had to wear the uniform. Be like having uh, a target on your back, wouldn't it? It pretty much was. Um, so um, he hasn't forgiven me for that. It comes up all of the time and everyone seems to think that that was a funny thing, but we were probably petrified at the time. <laughs> um, that, that we were the only two. And, and other service kids that went didn't have a uniform. But he didn't know for a long, long time that it was our parents together and my mum making them that decided that we were going to wear uniforms. I love so that. So that's probably, that's probably as funny as it gets from Mayo and, and as I say, that when the family tell it, they add a bit of mayo to it. But, I can imagine uh, they would. It stuck around for a while. No, it's awesome. If if uh, if you were to share something unique or interesting that you've never shared publicly before, Michael, what would it be? Um, unique or interesting? Um I look, it's probably a recent journey, which and it probably entails or, or ties me back to a little bit of this whole investment piece and what generated my thinking around uh, or accelerated my thinking around uh, investment. But I was diagnosed a few years back with a, a disease called polycystic kidney disease, okay. um, which ultimately means um, your kidneys will eventually shut down. So you'll, you'll go dialysis and, and then, if you're lucky enough, a... a um, Transplant. Wow. Um, so not not too many people know about that. Those that are close to me obviously do. But, um, you know, that's something that, that you know, say, isn't a problem. They're, they're the cards you dealt and, and, you know, you, you deal with, you know, the, the environment you've got. Uh, but it certainly uh, changed the way I thought and, and made me learn or relearn or think about um, certain things that I hadn't done in the past that that probably I needed to do when I was putting off. Um, so you know that changed my my eating habits, my my um, lifestyle habits, uh, exercise regimes, all those sorts of things that that um, that uh, you know stand you in good stead um, for for whatever gets thrown at you, and that as physical or mental. Um, but uh, yeah, so not too many people until now know. Know much about that, but uh, and and yeah, that throws in some other you know passions around you know things that 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 you know we push around um, transplant and and uh, you know people being on the on the um, organ donor lists and those sorts of things. So that's probably another conversation another day. But mm. um, you know that was just something that that uh, yeah it, it's close to me obviously because it's it's what I deal with every day. Um, but um, you know from a a, a, a perspective of what you do all the time, it kind of um, fine-tunes a lot of that stuff. So it sort of made me think business has got to be better, relationships have got to be better, um, and uh, investments and, and things like that need to be 
to be better because you know I've got, there's a limited time that you can you can do those things now. Um, so you just need to get all your ducks in a row. So you know that would have been a thing to say ten years ago. What I'm trying to do now should have been in place. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's whether it's unique or or not. But that's something that that not too many people are aware of. But it's something that also um, drives what I do today. So it's right. kind of an important, quite it's- an important part would certainly change your perspective and, and add some challenges uh, in in relation to how you look at things. And it, it's funny how the these sort of triggers, while they, they seem uh, bad at the time, uh, are often the the uh, the switch that gets us to do do things differently and better that we were perhaps putting off or never quite getting around to. Uh, so yes. you know, it's it, it's often those things that that create the biggest opportunity. And I guess it, talking about challenges uh, beyond that, which is challenging enough, uh, what what challenging event in your life has brought about your greatest learnings and, and biggest changes beyond that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So tra- yeah, traveling overseas a lot is a challenge because you you need to you need to um, learn to adapt and 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 deal with change. Um, but uh, yeah, probably you know one thing that that was close. My father-in-law passed away of, of MND. Uh, he was only fifty-seven, I think, fifty-seven when he was diagnosed. Fifty-nine when he passed away. Wow. Um, and there was a point in time there that when I was in hospital with him and, and we were having a conversation, I said, right, I'm about to go back and do this. And he just looked at me and said, no, you're not. He says, no, that's not the person. You're, you're, when you're doing that, you're not the person that, that um, you know, you could be or should be. And, and so that was a point where I sort of sat back and said, okay, well, now I do have to re-evaluate. So if someone's telling me that, that's pure, honest and raw, um, then I, I need to to look back and then see you know, what am I doing? What what decisions am I, am I making? Are they best for me? Are they best for those around me? Um, so that was a bit of a wake up call because, as I say, I'm not far from that age now, mm-hmm. and and you sort of think, well, that's that's a whilst there's a long life is long, um, it can be taken away at any time, but you're you've got to make the most of the time that you've got. And and don't wait for things to happen, because uh, often the things we wait to happen aren't the things we really want to see. Absolutely so. right. No, beautifully said, mate. Uh, let's translate that into the the money world. Then, uh, yeah. Uh, what does money mean to you, Michael? Um, look, it's changed over time. So money used to be just what you you had to survive. Um, and and I don't mean wherever living on the streets, but it was, you know, we did what we had to do. So in the early days, it was um, buy a house. And, you know, then you go through that change of, of having kids, and then it goes through, you know, being able to spend time with the kids. So so money changed from being that necessity in in just doing what we do all day every day. You know, we were in a lucky position that my wife could could not go back to work after our second child, and she got to spend time with them where I wasn't. And we figured that if someone had to miss out, um, or, or the point is, if we were in a position where only one of us had to miss out on that, then then that's the way it would be. Um, so, you know, we were financially well enough to be able to do that. We we uh, could live comfortably within our means. Um, we, you know, it wasn't holidays. It wasn't you know buying flash and fancy things, uh, but 
the value, or what was that investment, I guess, was to spend time and put back into our kids. So we bought them up and someone else didn't. Um, so we were lucky. Not everyone gets to do that. Um, uh, and then as time went on, money changed. So, you know, that's when money becomes, well, how can I make money from money? And wherever am I going to be able to best use my money? Um, so that was the business part of it. So that's where we decided, okay, well, I'm hitting a ceiling working for people. Um, I'm going to take a chance. You know, and it might work and it might not. Um, and it was certainly into a field that I had no understanding of. But, again, the core of it was was about me. So I had, had my all of my uh, beliefs tied to it. Um, and, and so that's that's where that, that then changed, was now we're investing into something that's got my blood, sweat and tears into it, and money became, I probably earned less money, but money became uh, more important because I could see what would happen if I invested a dollar, I could get two or three back or I could get 50 cents back. Yeah. Um, so I started to think about how how we used the, the money and, and then the intent was to sell the business uh, and make money from the business to put us in a more financially, you know, a better position. So um, at that point, the, the, the money actually had a value. Um, and then, again, this, changing businesses where we were able to actually be probably in a more um, profitable business and, and we could actually start then to use the money. So it was always a, a learning curve of, of what money meant, how it changed and, and how, how it could benefit you. Um, so now money is, um, well, to best use my money is to work out how I can uh, make more money off that money to to ultimately not have to uh, be involved in the thing that generates it. Yeah. So yeah. If, if that makes sense. It makes absolute so, sense, the old re- residual yeah. passive income exercise. Where, where, where's investment uh, fitted in, into your uh, journey and uh, can you sort of give us a, a quick idea of uh, what your investment approach has been and how that's evolved and, and where it's heading to? Yeah, absolutely. I guess in the early days, again, it's you don't have a lot of money. So we were always taught buy your house, own your own bricks and mortar, and then you're successful. So that was the first investment was uh, we've got savings. We're going to put them into this house that I'm not, not sure we ever thought it was our forever house, but it was a big deal. Um, and, and, you know, it was going to take a big chunk of what we did. Within sort of seven or eight years of that, it was a case of, okay, now we need to outgrow this. We need to, you know, get as much equity in this thing as, as we can so we can go on to that next investment. Yeah. Um, and so for an early stage, that's what investing was for us, was just investing to get that next step up, yeah. you know, get a, a slightly bigger house, more valuable house, something that is going to increase in its own value over time. Um then from there, it was now a case of, well, how do we use the equity in the house better? Um, and if I had have had my time again, you mentioned it in your intro, rent best. I had no idea what that was. Word, the word was just strange and didn't make any sense. And it probably took me yeah, a while to actually get my head around what you know, that actually meant and, and understand that it, that it actually was a good thing. Because um, you know, it was the old story: why rent when you can buy? You know, that's yeah. the advertising thing goes out there. Exactly. And, and so yeah. we're all driven to do that. So uh, the rent vest is is where I wish I had have started. You know, it's one of those things of 
you mentioned, you know, let the, the tax man and, and the, and the, the uh, tenant make the payments for you and, and do the heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, do that early. Have the opportunity to, to do it. And even if you rent, and, and I mentioned earlier that, that um, we had uh, a group of guys that went away together, four guys, haven't seen each other for a long period of time. And it was interesting just listening how they did their thing. Um, and one said, yeah, you know, I can't afford or won't be able to afford to buy in town, so I'm going to go and buy something out of town um, that that I know I'm going to be able to, to pay off and I know it's going to grow in, in investment. Um, and this is a great idea uh, for the simple fact that, okay, I'm not going to live in it as my full-time home, but it's something I can afford to do and it's something that's going to appreciate in value and then, again, I can use that, that value um, to do what I want to do. If they hadn't done that, they might have just rented and not invested and not have that asset in the in the uh, well growing in the background. Yeah, it's um, gone. Yeah, and that, yeah. that's the thing. A lot of people, uh, you know, there's this debate over over the two, and the and the danger is if you go down that road, you spend it on other things rather than put in the stuff. So, so having and, and I'm guilty of that. Well, no, it, it, home becomes a forced investment strategy in a sense because yeah. you, it's a growing asset that you have to make the repayments on. If you if you look forward, then uh, is your investment strategy like to change? And and what does that yeah. look like? Can you sort of um, unpack that for us? Yeah, so the investment strategy now, and I guess health is probably one of those things that's accelerated that thinking, but it's accelerated too late. Um, but but probably said, you know, stop messing around and, and you know, start almost start doing what you're talking. Because um, I'll have these conversations with customers every day. Um, but it, so it has changed that that point. We don't need to own something that we buy. You know, so so if we buy it today in 10 years' time, if, if cycles continue as they are or have done, it's doubled its value if you're careful about where you invest. Um, so come retirement, you might not own it, but you don't necessarily need to own it. So you have that choice at that point in time. So do I go into retirement with the property um, that that still has an encumbrance on it, that still has a mortgage on it, that someone is still paying and I, I may have to to lean into uh, every now and then? Um, or do I sell that, use the equity and put that into my super at that point in time? Yeah. Um, but it gives you choices. Yeah, and, and unless you do it, you don't have choices. And, and what was creating a fear for me was I was going to have this house that's worth a lot of money and, and I would own it outright, but I would be forced to sell it and move to retire. Yeah. Um, and, and I get the whole idea of downsizing and, and the rest of it, but you've got to then find a place that you like. You've got to you know, have something that has all those same, same comforts that you've got now. And, and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be forced to do that. You know, it might still and probably likely it will happen, but I want to do it on my terms and not not be forced to to do that for retirement. Yeah, well, so, a lot of hardworking Aussies uh, out there, Michael, who uh, all of their wealth uh, sits in in the home, uh, so they're asset rich but cash poor, and uh, you know, the sadly, most people's super levels isn't going to give them a sort of a level of income that's going to allow them to, to live comfortably. Uh, so yeah. making the hard decision uh, to invest in things outside the home or, uh, as you say, be forced to downsize to free up some equity that's going to fund your lifestyle. Uh, that's, that's some of the challenges that a lot of 
lot of Aussies are actually uh, faced with whether they are uh, aware of it or not as we currently speak. So, so uh, yeah. talking about investment, then uh, if you look back on your journey, Michael, what, what's been your best and your worst investment, and and what have you learned from each of those? Yeah, look again, it's perspective, I suppose. So, my best investment to a degree, and not necessarily not necessarily making you the most money, but was going out and then, then started my own business. Um, because that in then changed my way of thinking. Um, and then it really has been property. Um, so buying property that's given the ability to, to see greater growth than money in the bank, super, you know, what's the average super turning around 8 or 9% over the last 10 years? Yep. Um, you know, if you put property next to that, it's it's significantly different. Yep. Um, so you're not doing all the, the hard yards to get the same growth. Uh, my worst um, early on, very early on, was probably one of these pyramid schemes because yeah. uh, a mate said it was a good thing to do and he'd made some money, so I thought I'd throw a couple of grand at that and do the same. The old Amway uh, special, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, oh, well, yeah, Amway specials, the old, uh, what were they, pilot schemes, were they? The Concord yeah. or whatever it was called, you know, you yeah. got money in and, and someone below you got money in and... And I always seemed to be the guy that was on the end of the wing falling off, not the guy that was flying the uh, flying the plane. So, um, uh, dot com had no idea on shares, no clue. I just had some mates that were doing it, and I thought they were good at it. So they said, "Oh, you got to invest in this hot orange or whatever it was at the time." And I said, "Well, that's great. If, if you're doing it, I'll do it." And threw money at that without any knowledge, without any education, with without uh, understanding the consequence. Um, and so when you, you – and I'm talking we were young, just had a house, uh, probably you know, a small child on the way, so you, you needed every dollar you had. So you were desperately looking for the quick dollar, yeah. um, and that seemed to be it. Uh, and, of course, I was always, again, that last one. So I think I put some money into this red-hot thing and it had gone up by – you know, $100 or something over the week before. And as soon as I put my money in, it, it crashed and it closed the, the market. So I didn't even lose. I mean, I, I lost everything. I didn't even get to lose a little bit. Um, but, again, that was about poor education, no no knowledge. I and mean, we grew up without having, you know, people investing. My, my family rented because of the jobs that they did, uh, rented until I was, you know, 30, 40 years old. Um and, and there weren't many around me uh, that, that actually invested. Um, yeah. So it was a new, you know, it was something we needed to learn. And I, and I really think we need to implement that into schools. Uh, another topic again and another time maybe, but I think if we want to be a, a stronger, wealthier country, then we need to teach uh, our kids what money is. So, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's had that journey with with money and investment. Um, uh, and if I had, yeah, yeah, if I had have learned that at school, then maybe look, I may not have done anything with it. But come the time that someone else started talking about it, something might have made sense, yeah. and I may have done it a little bit earlier. But if if you don't know about it, yeah. then that you don't know what you don't know, and, and if you don't understand it, you tend to just away from it exactly and you, you we go with the crowd we go with it what everyone else is doing and if yeah. the majority of people aren't focused on it they focus on the here and now and and the immediate exercises then the delayed gratification of investing in the future just is not something that never comes under the horizon yeah so, i've been uh, burnt before and, and and one of the things i've always learned is no one ever tells you about their losses 
So, you know, well, yeah, I've made lots of money doing this. Well, hang on, I actually lost all my money on that. Yeah. Um, and they've went gone through their, their uh, education process. So, uh, talk, you know, you've got to talk to the experts and lots of them, not just one, um, and and truly try and understand what you're doing. So, so you can control it a little bit better. And, and I think within our supers, that's a that's another thing that we just keep putting money in and not knowing what it's what it's doing or how it works. Yeah. Um, and given super such an important part of our future, our kids' future, another thing they should be teaching properly at school. You well, know, so and, and not not allowing learn. the governments to continuously change the 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 rules after the event because they want to get their sticky hands on that big lolly jar that's uh, yeah. growing uh, year on year. Well, Go we on. all know that they've done it for their their benefit as well, haven't we? Spot on, mate. Now, beautifully said. Uh, I'd really appreciate you sharing that journey, mate. Uh, there's a lot of people who are going to be nodding their head with with everything that you've shared with us on that. I I want to now sort of jump into what I affectionately call the. Uh, the bushfire ambush round, uh, sort of right. running off the old name, and there's a, a couple of a quick questions that I'll get your responses on. Uh, the first of those, mate, what, what superpower do you wish you had and why? Um, again, probably ties in, and, and I get picked on this a bit because I talk about it, but it's it's Wonder Woman's lasso of truth. Yeah. Uh, because again, it gets, gets everyone to the point straight away, you know. And and if you could actually give people the confidence to tell you what they're thinking, not what they think they should tell you, yeah. uh, then we can all all you know be in a better position and get a greater result early on. And and I suppose if I put that into the business side of things, when we're talking to clients, they're only telling us what they think they should be telling us. Which when it gets to the nitty gritty of what we do, that can actually impede what. Um, the result of what they get. Um, and whilst they think they might be doing the right thing, it's it's always a case of um, just be open and honest and and uh, not be afraid to say anything because look, ultimately we get to know all about you anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so let's let's you know cut to the chase and get that right. Um, so yeah, the, the the Wonder Woman lasso of truth. I wish I I had a number of times that I could throw down the phone and. And and get people to to actually just be confident enough to to open up and, and tell us exactly what what's happening and, uh, and and that way we can help them better. Yeah, beautifully said. Uh, it's switching to the literary field for a moment. Uh, what would be the title of the book about you if your worst enemy wrote it, mate? Um, yeah, what do I think on this one? So this is um, like I asked the question around around the place, and, and everyone said I don't have enemies. So, and so that was going to be difficult. I think it was something along the lines of um, you don't have to like them to respect them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so if uh, you know if, if there is an enemy out there, you know I uh, I apologise, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's all done. On everything I do is done with good uh, good purpose. No, I like that. You don't have to be like to be respected. Is a is yeah. a is something that uh, a lot of us shy away from because we we like to be liked. Uh, yeah. But but saying uh, what needs to be said, uh, whether it's uh, taken on board or other, does create a lot of respect when when people are, are brave enough to look look beyond uh, the impact that it has on a mate. So beautifully said. Yeah, so, I mean, look, I, mean, I think that's come about. I've had people that I I have learned so much from that I don't want to be anything like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's always some positive benefit to come out of the negative. 
totally agree. Yeah, I want to switch into caffeine for a minute, mate. Uh, if you can yeah. have a coffee with anyone, alive or dead, uh, yeah. you know, historical or otherwise, uh, who would you choose and why? Yeah, look, I there's um, there's a couple I talk about that caffeine probably wasn't even around at the time, so uh, and they might be controversial, so I might leave them off to the side. But one person that's always fascinated me, and I don't know why, because I'm not a political person, um, but for some reason to sit down with Barack Obama, I, mm. I, I don't know. I've always just been impressed the way he carries himself, mm. um, just right. his his knowledge, his. You know, and he has he was reasonably brave to actually stand up where he was and be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I think I like that about him. Yeah. Um, so it'd be a really interesting person to sit down with and and see what uh, you know how he's learnt because he was you know, he was never going to be president and uh, in the early days and and through his pathway he's he's you know gone to the top of the tree and, and so something like that would be really interesting but look I, I like history as well so you know sit down with a napoleon or a uh yeah julius, julius caesar or something like that and, and live through their eyes would have been uh, pretty cool as well but yeah, modern days probably barry yeah no, and, and he's a he is a, a real statesman there's no no question about it he's eloquent uh, he sticks to his guns uh yeah i i, I would love to have a copy with him as well uh, and yeah. Last one on these, mate. Uh, if if you won ten million dollars tomorrow, uh, what would you do with it? Um, yeah, ten million. It's, it doesn't sound like a lot of money nowadays, does it? It's no, uh, you know when, when you see everything being thrown out in you know thirty million, fifty million dollar lottos, and and you know, businesses being sold for mega millions. But I, I think you know ten million is huge, and and it would give you the ability. Or for me, it would be set myself up properly make sure I was in a position to, to have all my debts paid off, support those around me, um, and, and definitely my kids, get them into a position where uh, maybe not so much give them money and hopefully they, they well, hopefully they do listen to this so now there's an expectation. Um, but, um, you know, do something that means that there's something there for them to leverage off, uh, but they've still got to go out and earn, you know, the right to do a lot of things. Um but uh, look, a passion for mine is, is just being able to go out and help people and and and, and give them an opportunity to, to do you know, educate people on on finances on on you know general business stuff. So I'd, I'd like to actually set something up where uh, I could help those disadvantaged get into a business for themselves and 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 grow it. So there's not a lot of profit in that, um, and I've done some non-for-profit work in the past, and I've really enjoyed you know. Uh, imparting that sort of information and seeing people accept it and, and use it. So I'd love to set something up along those ways. So a bit of money there would actually uh, give me the ability to, to um, be able to set something like that up and and, uh, and then leave some sort of legacy down the track. Beautifully said, mate. Uh, I know we're going to dive deep into the the uh, very overwhelming world of asset finance in the in the next episode. But for those yeah. that are really resonating with your message today, uh, what's the best way for uh, us to get in touch with you, mate? Yeah, look, either off uh, our sort of newly uh, regenerated Facebook page, um, National Direct Finance. Um, uh, certainly reach out through our website, nationaldirectfinance.com.au. Um, and... Uh, um, any of the socials, uh, you're able to find us. But um, nationaldirectfinance.com.au will um, 
we'll get you straight to our page and, and uh, give them access to, to me or, or anyone else in the group. Excellent, mate. I really want to thank you for taking the time to share the ins and outs of your personal journey, mate. And uh, thank you, mate. anyone would actually like to ask any further questions or leave your comments and, and thoughts on this, just jump uh, just join and jump into our newly badged Property Hub Collective Interactive Facebook community where you can keep the conversation going with other like-minded, hard-working Aussies. And we now look forward to continuing the convo in next week's episode where we're going to deep dive into the good, bad and ugly of the increasingly complex world of asset and equipment finance as a basis for combining the benefits of access over ownership and opportunity costs. So I look forward to seeing you again then. Stay tuned for part Thank two you. of this interview next episode. Thanks for tuning in to Get Invested on the Property Hub podcast channel, your home for property investment insights and inspiration. And don't leave yet until you've taken the next step towards living by design. By getting my award-winning book, Get Invested, absolutely free when you sign up at knowhowproperty.com.au or bushymartin.com.au. And finally, make sure you subscribe to Property Hub to get your weekly dose of Get Invested inspiration along with every episode of Realty Talk, Australia's leading property show for red-hot property investing news and insights, direct from industry leaders and influencers. Remember to always get invested in your knowledge and I look forward to seeing you next time.